This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. I'm releasing today's episode on September 17th, 2018, and doing so with somewhat of a heavy heart. Yesterday, a man named Ari Fold, Hashem Yimkom Damav, was savagely murdered in the Gush Etzion area of Israel. And Ari is not a person that I knew, although we were around the same age and had quite a few overlapping circles. For example, his father was the dean of students at the yeshiva I attended in the mid to late 90s in Israel. But for reasons you'll understand in a moment, I feel compelled to share a couple of personal thoughts on this situation. You see, today I'm releasing an episode, which is an interview of a man named Rabbi Avraham Leventhal, who is the director of a phenomenal charity organization called Lama'anachai. Lama'anachai is based in Ramat Beit Shemesh, and they promote the notion of smart chesed, as they call it, smart kindness, where they really help people get back on their feet and break the cycle of poverty. Well, on the particular morning that I was going to interview Rabbi Leventhal, I had a number of other interviews. So it was a very stressful day. I started out by taking my rental car and going to Nofi alone, where I interviewed Racheli Frankel, a person who I believe is a an absolute hero in the Jewish world, the mother of Naftali Frankel, Hashem Yimkum Damav, one of the three boys murdered in July of 2014, kidnapped along with two compatriots. And I desperately wanted to interview her for quite a long time and finally had the great privilege of doing so. So I ran over to her home, had that interview, which is very emotional, quickly jumped in my car and drove over to Gush Etzion, probably not far from where Ari Fold was murdered. Interviewed a wonderful woman named Rachel Moore, whose episode I will be releasing at some point in the near future. Rachel is the founder of Hub Etzion, the first co-working space in the Gush, in that part of Israel, modeled after WeWork approach doing incredible things for business and entrepreneurship and innovation in that area. And then I ran over to Ramat Beit Shemesh to interview Rabbi Leventhal along with one other person. And the other person I was meeting at the Laman Achai headquarters is where we made up to, to actually do our interview. Once I was going to be there anyway to interview that director was Hillel Fold. Hillel Fold is a major figure in the tech industry in Israel, a vlogger, very plugged into the whole entrepreneurship scene, the whole startup nation scene in Israel. And he's also the brother of Ari Fold. And again, I met him at the headquarters of Laman Achai. So the very interview I was planning to release for some time now, this morning, was conducted in a place where moments before that, I interviewed the brother of this man who I discovered just yesterday had been brutally murdered. Something very, very striking about that connection that I couldn't ignore and needed to share. And yet, it goes even beyond that because 
On my way to Ramat Beit Shemesh, right outside the city gates, I had a very frightening incident where I was a little bit lost and I was rushing from interview to interview. And I made an illegal U-turn on a, a side road near the city entrance. I started going the wrong way and I, I turned around quickly when I realized. And I was pulled over by police officers. And this became a very, very frightening encounter because these police officers took my passport and they couldn't find an entry stamp in the passport. Unbeknownst to them, apparently the officials had discontinued putting stamps directly in the passport. And these officers demanded to see my stamp. And when they couldn't find it, they accused me of having a second passport, of being an Israeli citizen, sneaking into the country or or of showing them the wrong passport, something along those lines. And they threatened to throw me into jail and they were yelling at me and, and really being very vicious with me. It was a very, very frightening moment because it was a Friday. I had to get back to my my wife in Jerusalem for Shabbat. And, and it just, these were very, very gruff and kind of bullying type of men who were really screaming at me and not believing me. And in those moments, I looked across the road and another person was pulled over. Who was pulled over? A rabbi from my yeshiva, my school that I had studied in in Israel over 20 years before, 22 years earlier. The very yeshiva where Rabbi Yonafold, the father of Ari Fold, had been the dean of students. And he looked across at me and just him being there was a source of tremendous comfort to me. At that moment, I actually didn't know why this rabbi had stopped there. I thought he was stopped because he saw me and wanted to bring me comfort that he was there with me. I found out only later when I emailed him that in fact he himself had actually been pulled over. But at the moment I thought that he had stopped for me. And the message to me was that from my perspective, God had put him there just to provide some measure of reassurance and comfort that someone was with me. God was with me. This rabbinic role model of mine from decades earlier at that exact moment had been pulled over or again in my perception had stopped just to provide me that sense of comfort. Finally, I was released and I went on to this interview, again, first with Hillel Fold and then ultimately with the director of Laman Achai, who you're going to hear from in just a moment. What do I make of all this? The truth is, I don't really know how it all comes together. But two ideas do emerge for me. One, life is a mystery and it's filled with and shrouded in mystery. We don't always see what's going on. Sometimes tragedy strikes, in my case, in no way remotely, remotely, anything to the degree that the Fold family has experienced. But there was a trauma and a fear and a pain being pulled over and berated and threatened with jail. And God gave me that little glimmer, that person there opposite me, to provide that comfort to me. As if to say, I'm with you. There's some sense to all of this confusion and this madness. You're being accosted and accused falsely. You don't know what's going to happen, but I'm here with you. There's some measure of connection that can break through the pain and the trauma. And secondly, we're here in the time 
between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, a time where one of the major things that we are asked to focus on is thinking of one another, charity among brothers. And I interviewed the director of Lama'an Achai, which literally means for my brother. And moments before I met the brother of the person who was killed just yesterday. And it screams out to me that what is the antidote for and response to the terrible pain and suffering that still persists in our world today? One of the most powerful antidotes must be charity among brothers. That we fight not only militarily and politically, which of course we also must, but through bringing light into the world, through giving to one another, through sharing and connecting and helping others. And so in that spirit, if anyone is in fact moved by this episode, inspired by this organization that Rabbi Leventhal is going to share with us about in addition to his personal life story, which is very, very moving in its own right, and you choose to make a donation, you choose to get involved with this organization, I ask that you do so in memory and in merit of Ari Fold. I am not saying that this is the charity that the family is promoting. I have not been in touch with the family. But I am saying if you personally are moved and you choose to get involved, please do so with him in mind, preferably explicitly, at the very least, with that intention. And with that long but I think vital, at least for me, and very personal introduction, I bring to you the director of Lama'an Achai, Rabbi Avraham Leventhal. We are here with Rabbi Avraham Leventhal, director of the Lama'an Achai charity organization, which we'll hear all about today. It's based in Ramat Beit Shemesh, a beautiful uh, town, very heavily uh, Anglo-populated, including, as you'll hear, Rabbi Leventhal himself um, is a very unique organization servicing the community and uh, looking forward to hearing all about his model of what is called smart chesed or smart kindness. How are you, Rabbi? Baruch Hashem, wonderful. Doing great. Thank you for joining us. Uh, tell us a little bit about where you're from, where that nice American accent of yours uh, comes from. Okay, so my nice American accent originated in Baltimore. All right. In Baltimore. I went to TA in Baltimore, Tom Nickel Academy, and uh, after leaving TA, I went to Yeshiva Base Motion Scranton, sure. and I came back to Baltimore and learned in there Israel for six All years. Right. My, my alma mater. Shiva and Kolo. Wonderful, wonderful. And growing up, were you involved in any kind of charity causes, a beautiful organization in, in Baltimore, Avat Yisrael? Yes, is- I was uh, very involved with Avat Yisrael, being a teacher in TA myself. Uh, many of the teachers in TA were involved in Avat Yisrael. Rabbi Brill right, and I worked hand in hand. Eli Schlossberg, Stuy Shabbos, a whole group of uh, people, Yossi Brescher, all of us worked together in Avat Yisrael, helping the people of Baltimore. So it's, first of all, it's, it sounds like you got a teaching job at your own alma mater. Correct. Which itself is a nice testament to, uh, you must have been a good, well-behaved kid. <laughs> I knew all the secrets. <laughs> What did you teach when you were at uh, uh, I taught various grades. Uh, most of the time I spoke, I taught um, Hebrew studies, Judaic studies in the elementary school, and I also taught in the middle school and high school over the years. I taught for 15 years wow. in, in TA. And was that something you'd always wanted to do? You would become a teacher, a Torah teacher? Um, at one point in my life, I decided I wanted to become a Torah teacher. I enjoyed learning very much, and I wanted to share what I learned. And um, so I began teaching in TA. Now, at some point, you actually, uh, I know from my own Baltimore roots, you introduced a very innovative 
teaching model into the classroom, uh, something that was kind of imported from Israel. Um, can you tell, tell people a little bit about what that was like, just because I think it's a really cool sort of sub-chapter in your own life and so forth. So in the 90s, um, here in, in Eretz Israel, the, the new schools were starting what was called the Zilberman system, or some variation of the Zilberman system. And the Zilberman system is not really new or revolutionary. It's actually based on the Mishnah, that a five years old, a child should start learning Chumash, and Bible, after yeah. he finishes all of Chumash, then he goes to Mishnah, after he finishes all of Mishnah, then he goes to Gemara. And that's really the idea that other people throughout, other uh, educators throughout history also were proponents of. For instance, the Maharab believed that, and the Vilna Gon is a very big proponent of the system of Ben Chamesh Lamikra, that you should start learning Chumash at five and not go to the next step until a child became totally proficient in Chumash. And then he's ready for the next step, which is Mishnah. When he becomes totally proficient in Mishnah, then he can go to Gemara. And in the 1990s, Rav Steinman, Zachar Racha, and other Rabbanim here in Eretz Yisrael were pushing the Zilberman method. The, uh, on the side note, one of the beauties of the Zilberman method was that they transversed the ideas of politics and, and, uh, and the polarization within the Frum community because there was no Takano and there were no rules in the Zilberman schools. If you wanted to come and learn the Zilberman system and you followed the rules while you were in the school, the school didn't care much about what your family looked like outside. Which is unfortunately not necessarily like the system in a lot of the religious communities in Israel, where there's a lot of sub-specialization, sort of niche down each school for a very specific uh, sliver of the society. Correct. And the Zilberman family continued to uh, expand. They started in the Rova in the old city. Um, with their hater, which continued to add grades as they needed. Uh, and there were other Zilberman systems that opened all over Eretz Yisrael in the, in the former Gush Katif. Um, yes. There's a Zilberman hater there in Beit El, um, in the north, and in Yerushalayim, and Ben Abrak, all over the country. And again, from different communities, you can see that Zilberman really transverses the idea of, of different groups within uh, the from world. And it's really the idea of learning, learning and getting learning and becoming proficient in learning. And that a child, by the time he comes to be 15 years old, he's ready to start mastering shas and other parts of learning. Um, one of the biggest issues that Zilberman faced was that after their kids got out of eighth grade or, or whatever elementary, their Yisodi, their, uh, their uh, where would they go for high school? For many years, the Zilberman system did not have a high school. In the 2000s, they began a high school and then eventually a COLA as well for those, those kids who wouldn't be able to fit in the uh, regular, quote unquote. Why wouldn't they fit system. at that point? At that point, by the time in the regular system, a child starts learning uh, Gemara at 10 years old before having finished Mishnah. He starts learning, in, in, even in America, in the TA, we started learning, teaching Gemara in fifth grade. Um, in the yeshiva world, it's fifth grade, sixth grade, that's when Gemara starts. In the Zilberman system, it's not going to start until someone is 14, 15 years old. Right. So if a kid is starting Gemara at 13 or, or, or 14, he's going to be behind for a certain amount of time in the regular yeshiva world. Um, as a matter of fact, at 13, very most kinds of the Zilberman system, he hasn't even seen a page of Gemara. So there was a need for a Zilberman high school and other types of Zilberman high schools. In addition, some school systems felt that the full Zilberman, 
um, was a little bit too much or too radical for their system. And there's Zichro Taurus Moshe and other forms and variants of Zilberman which have less uh, rigorous Zilberman system. Yeah, for right. example, I think the Zilberman schools had school every day of the year, but two, but Tisha B'Av and, and Yom Kippur, Correct. I think. School in Rosh Hashanah, school in Sukkot. In uh, Shabbos afternoon, oh, and, and, and that's the way it went. Um, as a matter of fact, I, when I was preparing to bring Zilberman back to the United States before my Aliyah, um, I spent a large part of the time in the original Zilberman Cheder in the Rova in the Old City. And I was there on Rosh Chodesh Elo, where in Rosh Chodesh Elo, um, that's when the classes changed. There was no summer break, there's no vacation. So in the first day of Elo, what happened was the kids went from Kita Bet to Kita Gimel. And they just went from this classroom Second to the third day, they just moved over <laughs> the next day. Exactly. And uh, so it, it was interesting. It was a very interesting experience. Of course, when I brought it back to America, certainly in Baltimore and TA, they weren't ready for a full Zilberman right. system. Um, but we modi- modified the system in order to be able to work within the guidelines of what TA wanted. And um, the first year was quite successful. And parents were very interested, even those who had been... Um, apprehensive about putting their children into such a program by the end of the first year which was very successful there was a desire to continue on for the, the next year and to fill up that class which was empty well wow. so what was uh, attractive to people about it was it that the kids were just coming home with a lot more knowledge there was there were two aspects number one they were actually coming out with a certain amount of knowledge um, the second aspect was that they were coming out with a tremendous enthusiasm for their learning. Interesting. A tremendous amount of enthusiasm. They actually, parents would tell me that their kids were sick and still wanted to go to school, where previously a kid would not be sick and not want to go to school. <laughs> um, I, I think the, the, for me, which had a major effect is we were trying to um, encourage another Rebbe to take over the next year for the Zilberman, and he was really a cynic of the system. So I told him to come in and to test the class and to pick a question from Humash, a question that, uh, that he had, and see if they could answer it. So he asked the question, um, where do you see 400 men somewhere in Chumash? And of course the kids answered right away that when Asa was coming towards Yaakov, he had 400 men with him. In the next three minutes, various kids from the class, and these are second graders at the end of their second grade year, went and pointed out every time the number 400 was uh, presented in Humash and what the instance of that 400 was. And this Rebbe who had come into the class, a cynic, walked out sold on the idea, and he in fact continued the Zilberman system the next year. Wow, unbelievable. So what ultimately happened with all that, and and it sounds like obviously at some point you decided to make Aliyah. So how did that work, and why, why did you make that decision, and when? Okay, excellent. So it's, it's ironic. Um, my wife and I had spoken about Aliyah for many years. My parents as well. My parents actually live here in Eretz as well. They made Aliyah as well. Um, but the, the, we solidified it, interestingly enough, the summer that I came to learn about Zilberman in order to bring it back to America. Uh-huh. Um, being here during that summer and uh, again, oh, having always wanted to make Aliyah, I made a decision. I was here by myself, but I was on the phone with my wife and I said, if we don't do it now, we're not going to do it. Um, and we decided that by the next summer, a year later, we would uh, come to Eretz and Aliyah. So it was, I had one year of the Zilberman program. And uh, even though it was very successful, and I think it was great, I felt for, you know, that I did what I had to do to bring it to Baltimore to the school. But at that point, I really wanted to make Aliyah with my family. Right. And a year later, we did. Did the, did the program continue in Baltimore at all? The program did continue. Um, I believe it continues until today, not quite in the original form. 
Um, and there has been discussion over the years, it's already 13, 14 years now since we started it, um, and there's been discussion over the years whether to continue or not, but I believe there's always been a nucleus of parents who really felt that their kids would benefit and gain not only the knowledge, but again, the enthusiasm for learning that comes along with the Zilberman system. Wow. So now you come to Israel, with, uh, assume with a family and, and so forth, and what did, you, what did you decide to do? Did you know? Did you have something set up coming here? To yes, so actually I had something set up with the Misrat Achinuch, the Ministry of Education. Oh, wow. Um, they were starting, there was a program called Na'aleh, which is Na'ar Olim Lifnei Horim, where the, the kids will come for high school, and eventually they hope to, to influence their parents to make Aliyah as well. And this program is mainly uh, targeted for secular kids. However, there's been an interest for religious kids as well because there's a high number of, of religious people who make Aliyah. So they were looking to expand the yeshiva system within Naale. They called it in English the Elite Academy. Um, and it targets countries all over the world, um, France and, um, and the former Soviet Union, a couple other places in Europe. And it had a small program called the Elite Academy in the United States, and they wanted to expand that. And I was hired to be a, um, to oversee the program with whatever yeshiva they were going to do here in Israel. And I, in fact, started with that the first couple of weeks after Aliyah. Um, and like many things in Israel, um, there was a tremendous cut in funding. 30% to the point where the uh, that elite academy program had to scale back even uh, beyond their original numbers, and um, I was looking for something else. So well, within weeks. Within weeks, probably within probably say within a month. That must have been devastating. Come on, uh, with set up with a job, well, and then you're out of work. Um, I knew that that could happen, so I made some uh, some contingencies. <laughs> the contingency was to go into the high tech world. And I actually retrained in high tech. I became a technical writer. Oh, okay. Um, there's a company, WritePoint, which trains um, technical writers and actually does job placement as well. And in the mid 2000, 2005, when I came, 2006, there was a um, upswing in the need for technical writers. So really, jobs weren't an issue. And I trained at WritePoint, and I um, and I finished the course in technical writing. I became a technical writer. Um, the of course. Um, what happened at the same time was quite an interesting story. When I came to Israel, I wanted to volunteer similar to as I did in Avas Israel in Baltimore. And I was looking for an organization and there was a small grassroots organization not too far from my home in Beit Shemesh called Lamanachai. And um, I decided to get involved with Lamanachai. And it was very small at that point. Um, it was working out of a small office and uh, there weren't too many families involved, but I really liked the idea of what they wanted to do, and it was something that was very convenient for me. So here I am retraining as a technical writer, and I'm volunteering for this organization. Um, shortly after I finished my course, I received a job offer from Mercury Systems, which eventually became Hewlett Packard. They were bought up by Hewlett Packard. And a week after I received a job offer, I was asked if I would take over running Lamana High wow. because the person running was going to be doing something else. So I said, I just got a job. For wow, that's a tough choice. Yeah. You know, when you come a high-tech job in Israel, means a decent salary. Proper salary, yeah. And it really it means uh, benefits and other things, and there's a certain amount of security there. So I told the people at Lamana High, I said, look, I, you know, I got offered a job in, uh, you know, in, in high-tech. I love volunteering for you. So we really need someone. It's only for six months. <laughs> 
This was in May 2006. <laughs> it was only for six months. Um, and you know, look, there'll always be jobs in high tech, especially in technical writing, you won't have an issue. So I brought it home to the dinner table. And um, I, I spoke with my family. I said, look, I've been offered, we, they knew about the job in, in Mercury, um, but I've been offered now to run Lamana High. And my kids were familiar with Abbas Yisrael and the Tzedakah and Chesed world. So I said, but our lifestyle is going to be very different. There's not going to be a car. Um, I don't know if there's going to be a salary. My wife is going to have to work full time. Um, and um, my son, who had just turned 14, looked at me and he said, what do you want to know that you did at the end of the day? That you helped someone program their DVD player or alarm clock or that you made a difference? Well, I, said, I think you should go for it. But I looked at him and I looked at all my kids and I said, but it means a different lifestyle. And the same child looked at me and he says, you were a Rebbe in TA. We're used to that lifestyle. <laughs> so I went back to the board and I said, okay, fine. I'll do it for six months until January 2007. They say in Israel, there's nothing more permanent than something temporary. So, uh, <laughs> uh, we're 12, over 12 years later, and uh, thank God I'm not looking back. Well, so describe a little bit what Lamanachai is and, and how it's unique. So Lamanachai is unique in that there are, there are literally, and here in Israel, tens of thousands of wonderful organizations that are doing amazing things and across the world. Again, I, I worked with an, a, just a phenomenal organization with great people in Baltimore, Avas Yisrael. Um, Lamana Chai's goal is really to bring people through and out of crisis. Um, it's not a band-aid, it's not a handout, okay, it's a hand up. Um, mm. all, of, all of those midiot, as we call it in Hebrew, all the stop gaps to keep a person from achieving financial and emotional independence and security, that's what Lamana Chai addresses. It's a comprehensive, a holistic approach really to get out of, of poverty. Um, and poverty is not just be, not being able to put food on the table. Poverty means um, a social stigma. Poverty means possibly domestic abuse. Poverty means depression. Poverty means a lot of things that come along, marital strife. All of those things are the byproducts or sometimes the causes of poverty. And what Lamanachai does is looks at the big picture and takes the family in, well, we do an intake, which would be a, like a triage in an emergency room. What are the needs of the family? Why are they not making it? What are the issues? Are there issues between the husband and wife? Are there issues with the children? Are there issues with financial management? Are there issues with debt? All of that is addressed by the team at Lamanachai. And the team includes a social worker, which in Israel is a case manager, not like a government social worker. It's more like a therapist or a psychologist who oversees the family. There's a financial counselor who looks at the financial situation. There's a legal rights person who makes sure that they're getting everything they can from the government. There's someone who, um, if there's debt issues, um, we have a gemach, we have a, an interest-free loan program. But in addition to that, we go and we, we speak to the banks and the electric company and the telephone company and whoever might be uh, holding as a debtor to the family and holding the cloud over them try to work out some type of arrangement in addition there is job counseling employment counseling um, we, we at any time we have dozens if not scores of people who are retraining um, small business developments um, we one of our families our successes was just recognized as one of the fastest growing small businesses in Israel Wow. And it's just a tremendous thing. They've been interviewed on an Israeli TV and they were just interviewed on an, on an Israeli television show that goes international um, because they, it's literally a rags, not quite to riches, but certainly to being able to sustain themselves story. 
And um, that's what the Manachai's goal is. The Manachai's goal is that there should, we should end, that, the, break the cycle of poverty. Um, one thing that we're extremely grateful for is that even when, when an organization can help on the parental level, um, with the poverty issues, very often the, the, the next generation, the second generation, has already been affected by that. And their life choices are very much influenced by what they grew up in, um, to the point that in the world at large, 75% of second generation children of impoverished families grow up impoverished, and they start their families that way. We're very, very grateful here in Lamanachai, 80% of our families are self-sufficient. Well, that they start off their family life when they get married, when they create a, a home, that they're able to be financially independent, either because they've gotten the education or the financial management that's required to balance a budget and a house. Well, amazing. So you'd say that the, the primary distinction between, let's say, another organization that would be giving out food and, and things like that, is that you're really kind of reframing everything for, for a family and doing a, a sort of a holistic um, right. treatment of them and, and you're addressing the debt or you're addressing the financial insecurity or, or scarcity, but in a much more comprehensive fashion in a way that's as, you know, proverbially teaching them to fish. And, right. And so it's interesting because what happens is in a family that's learning how to fish, we know the adage that if you feed a man a fish, you fed him for today, you teach him how to fish, you fed him for life. I add two, um, two clauses to that. Number one, you need to feed them while they're learning lest they starve. Now, if someone is just, if just service-oriented organization without providing a carrot to the stick, some type of material aid program, they're not going to have the motivation or the ability to follow through with a program. So the Monachai has an extensive material aid program. We have food packages. We have uh, extensive help for the Chagim. We help with critical bills and utility bills and things like that for those families that are really going through the process of changing their station in life. So that's number one, that we feed them while they're learning. Number two is that we teach them how to make a fishing rod. What does that mean? The tools to cope. Very often, you'll have a family that's that's really striving to come out of their mess, but because there are all of the, uh, the related issues, they get stuck. So if you teach them how to cope with everything in life, with all of their um, issues, with all of the um, all of the uh, pitfalls that they might that they might uh, come into, that helps them all the way through. I'll give you an example. We had someone come to us. Um, he was an Israeli Haredi man. He had learned in Panovich Yeshiva, and he's not making it. And he's he's not supporting his family. And he's from gemach to gemach, and and he's just in debt up beyond his nose. And he says, I, I can't live like this. He's a very bright guy. So he comes to us. He says he wants to go to law school, but he went to law school on his own. That's why he did that on his own. He went to law school. His family almost disowned him. I don't think they sat shiva, but it came close. Even his wife, who said, I married someone who was going to sit and learn, was not very happy, although she understood the difficulties in the financial burdens they were carrying. So he comes out of law school. In Israel, it's very um, easy because law school is an undergrad, right. graduate. So he, went, he came out of law school. He has some debt. And he starts looking for a job. So he goes and he's offering himself. Here he is, a tenderfoot right out of law school, a little bit naive to the ways of the world. And he got, um, he got um, scooped up by a small company in Tel Aviv who said, oh, here's somewhere we can get a legal guy, we can get an, uh, right. a on the cheap. lawyer on the cheap. And they hired him for their legal department. He was doing contracts and, and working with their other companies. 
Um, and then they realized after nine months that they needed more than him and they decided that it was worth it to outsource and they began outsourcing their legal um, needs. So here he is after nine months, he no longer has a job, he doesn't have severance because he didn't even work a full year, he has the debt, um, he has the debt from law school and he has the debt from before law school. And he sits in depression, almost depression, for two months before someone sends him our way. And he comes to us and he says, what do I do? I said, you look at it as a failure, I look at it as an opportunity. How many Ponovich Jungleite are there who are lawyers in the state of Israel? I'm, I'm sure there are some, but I can't, I can't imagine you can count them on more than one hand. So we set him up as a small law office. Um, we got him equipment, a, a computer, a fax printer, a well, yeah. telephone. So we rented a small office and uh, we started an advertising campaign for him that he was going to be doing contracts, real estate stuff, a notary. By the way, notary in Israel is different in America. In America, a notary is $2. If they even charge, in Israel, it's 140 shekel. So that's a significant amount for a notary. And um, it's actually going well. And I made the following deal. I said, if in 18 months you're still in business, so everything that I gave you is a grant, and you do what you want, you want to pay us back, that's your, I'm not, I'm not going to charge you. If within 18 months you're, you're out again, you know, you're not working, then I want you to give me back all the equipment and everything else is a write-off. Um, and he starts and it's going very well. He's actually getting contracts and he's getting requests for notary. And about three or four months into the process, everything comes to a grinding halt. Why? His wife says, you're working 40, 50, even 60 hours a week. Why aren't we, why are we still in debt? You know, again, there's a naivety there. She doesn't realize there was a law school debt, and there was a pre-law school debt, and there's two months of not working. And so because we have a holistic, a comprehensive approach, we have the professionals who can work with a couple. We have a free loan fund that can consolidate a loan. Um, and all of his debt was consolidated into an interest One interest loan. loan, yeah. Um, and with, it took a couple of months of some intensive therapy and some financial rearranging, but he was back on his feet again and he's working. Fast forward several years, um, he's now working in a firm in Ramat Gan and, uh, and with experience now, and, and he's making a very good living. And uh, he did, he paid us back for the equipment that he took. And um, we hear from him about once or twice a year. He gives a donation on Rosh Hashanah time, Pesach time, as Hakar Tato for what he feels the Manachai did for him. He's one of scores and scores, actually hundreds of stories that are similar. Men and women, single mothers, single fathers, married people, Olim, Vatikim, you know, Israeli natives. Um, who come to a difficult part of their life, they step into a crisis, and because they come to the Manachai today, they're on their own. Um, I once wanted to meet with the Rav to get his support of the Manachai, and he says, I get, this is a Rav in America, and he says, look, I get thousands of requests from Israel. He says, why should I listen to you? He says, if you can convince me within 30 seconds why I should listen to you, I'll give you a meeting, he tells me. So I'm going to be in his city only for one day, so i got to make it good. So I said, let me ask you, how long have you been a Rav? He says, I've been a Rav for 37 years. He says, actually, I'm retiring next year. I said, oh, Mazel Tov. So I said, let me ask you, do you give Matanot Levionim on Purim? He said, of course, there's not a rabbi in the world who doesn't give Matanot Levionim, not a person in the world who doesn't give Matanot Levionim. I said, in your 37 years as a Rav, has anyone said, no, I don't need this year because you've helped me in the past? He says, are you out of your mind? <laughs> he says, they want more. I said, every year we get phone calls from people, you don't have to give me this year, we're making it, thank God. So he says, okay, I'll meet you at 11 o'clock in my office. <laughs> and and Kachave, he got on, he got on the, the bandwagon, he understands that this is really the way to go because 
the system of a handout and a continual handout is unsustainable. And it's not only unsustainable from a financial aspect, all of the social ills that come together with poverty and, and not making it and the lack of self-worth um, really take a toll on, on the cloud. And so in addition to making brighter futures for our individual families, we're hoping to make a change in the way people view tzedakah and chesed. And that's what the Rambam says. That's the highest level of tzedakah. The highest level of tzedakah is to help a person be on their own. And uh, he wasn't kidding. <laughs> he really meant that that's the highest level. And um, the chai imach, you know, that they should live with you. Not that they should live with you, meaning their hand should be out to you. They should live with you. They should be on the status. They should be able to not only provide for themselves, but they too can give over to people who are less fortunate than they do you only work with a family that is willing to get with the program? In other words, it sounds like they really have to put in a lot of work themselves. Okay, that's a, that's a, that's an excellent question. So at, when I was still volunteering 13 years ago, um, a decision was made that up to 20%, up to one-fifth of the families in the Manachai could be chronic, meaning that they have something that's keeping them from being fully financially independent. It could be a handicap, could be an emotional issue, it could be a single mother with eight children. Sometimes there are things that just keep a person from being there. Yeah. And Lamanachai, if that family came to Lamanachai and got in the door, we're not gonna kick them out for that. That being said, we really look for those families who want to get with the program. Now, that being said, if a family comes and says, I don't have food, or I can't do this, or I can't do that, we will certainly help them, we'll try to work with them. As a matter of fact, many of our services are not only for our families, but we give to the community at large. Our financial counseling is open to anyone. Mm -hmm. um, our citizens' rights, with the Bitua Khumi, the National Insta uh, Insurance Institute, and the Kupat Cholim, and tax issues, that we open up to the entire community. I say community because we have offices outside of Beit Shemesh as well. We have the oh. State Roads, and the Kiryat Sefer, and, um, and Rehovot, and Elad. Wow, okay. And in addition to that, we started a new program about two months ago where we're doing career counseling, where people, either they hit a midlife crisis, and they don't know what to do at this point, they want to retrain, or an Oleh who comes to Israel and says, this is not for me, I can't teach anymore, or something like that. We work with them, we have, um, we have career counselors, um, vocational counselors, employment counselors, who are trained to work with people to help them with the CV, to help them pick the right course to retrain in, um, to help them market themselves in the, in the job world. Do you ever get any pushback from anyone on this method, or everyone hears it and, and loves it? Most of the donor world loves it. Right. Um, certainly outside of Israel. <laughs> um, in Israel, there is sometimes a fear that we could be chipping away at certain cultures and systems. Um, we don't do that. We never tell a person to leave Kolo. We never tell a person that he should change his lifestyle unless it's a financial lifestyle. Um, as far as whether he should leave Kolo or not, that's between he and himself, he and his wife, he and the Rebbe he and his Rosh Kolo. Um, we don't tell the person. If a person is, is an Avreich and he comes into the Manachai, um, we're not going to go and see, we're not able to support his call of life. That's not what we're here for. But if he is having, looking to get into the work world or the business world um, or to trade in a job, we will give him the tools to get there. Um, but we don't, so in, from that respect, some people say, well, you know, you're, uh, 
you're professing that people should go to work. Well, we're professing that people should take care of themselves and their families and be financially and emotionally healthy. Right. That's what we're professing. We're not professing against anything. We're professing for something else. Um, so sometimes there, there have been issues, but by and large, I've never had someone tell me on a one-to-one, even someone who's part of the Colo world or part of the learning world, when I speak to them one-to-one, they will never tell me that you're doing a terrible thing. Right. Call a kavod, can I send you three people? Um, that's usually the conversation. At the same time, they're not going to get up um, in their shul or their kolel or their social group and say, you know, support Lamana Chai because this and this and this. Because ultimately, if someone is looking to leave the, the, the world or if someone is looking to create a financial future for themselves, um, they know that this is the, the place to come. So it was founded in Beit Shemesh? It was founded in Beit Shemesh. So how did it end up? Proliferating so, was that part of under your tenure? And so it was. Um, it was. It was started here in Beit Shemesh. Actually, started in someone's basement. Moved to a one-room office. Um, now we're in, in this duplex office. We're actually given a piece of land by the government to build on. Nice um, in Ramat Beit Shemesh. Here? In Ramat Beit Shemesh area to be a, a national center. It expanded through people hearing about us. Um, one area of expansion is our dental clinics. We have a, a, a network of dental clinics nationwide. People always ask me, well, how does that fit into Smart Chesed and dental clinic? Right. So I tell them that you have to know that there is no dental insurance for adults in Israel. Children have dental insurance. Really? But um, the... the um, the health funds do not cover dentistry. So adults do not have dental coverage. So if someone cannot pay their bills, the last thing on their mind is going to a dentist. Sure. So there are health issues that come with not going to a dentist. And secondly, if we're getting people into the job market, if they're not going to smile, they won't get a job. Literally, there are people whose teeth are so bad they wouldn't smile. So if they are able to avail themselves to our dentistry um, and one of our five dental clinics, that helps them in the job world. And we've heard it from not only the employees, but the employers that it makes a difference. If I see someone's not going to smile, there goes the interview. Um, so that's how we've gotten into some communities. We were approached this week, this past week, actually, right before the rockets fell. Um, I had a meeting with the mayor of Stay Road. Stay Road offered us three years ago a free building free rent, free building, um, to open up our services. And we started with the dental, with their dental program because that's the easiest way to get people in the door. And um, he's very impressed by what we've done. He's very impressed with Lamana Chai. He called us to a meeting this week and um, he wants to greatly expand the services we do for Stay Road. The Stay Road offices serves not only Stay Road, but the whole southern area, the 14 communities that border Gaza, Ashkelon, um, Yerucham, Nitivot, Beersheba, Kirat Malachi, all of the families that live in the southern area of Israel avail themselves of the Manachai services in Stay Road. The office in Beit Shemesh um, is mainly Beit Shemesh, Ramat Beit Shemesh, and the Mata Yehuda, which is the area around. And again, there's an office in Kiryat Sefer, there's an office in Elad, and a satellite in Rehovot, which is only dentistry. And all these are funded from the single center, or each one is responsible to raise uh, funding locally? So the Manachai funds here in Beit Shemesh and in Sterot. Um, Kiryat Sefer is partially funded by the Manachai, and there's also a partner. We have a partner of another organization that helps us there. Elad is totally self-sufficient. Wow. They're under the Manachai banner, but they raise their own money for Elad. And they have their own director and everything? They have their own office. They have their own director. Again, they're under our umbrella. They're under our licensing. Um, and Rehovot also has its own, because Rehovot's a total satellite. It is a separate entity, but again, under the Manachai banner. Wow, amazing. Is, is your dream to kind of continue proliferating this around 
Israel? Yes, and because we, we get requests for it. We get requests. Now, what we're, the idea that we've come up with and we've been working on for the last about two months is that instead of opening up an office, which just is an expense of a building, we're not, not everyone's going to be the mayor of Stero and say, here's a building. I mean, this week he said, okay, this isn't enough. I want to build you something else. I mean, Stero is really, really um, enthusiastic about what we're doing. And other cities are as well, but other cities are, what can you do for me? Um, so we've come up with the idea, our mobile units, that we would have a mobile unit that would come to a particular city once a week on a Tuesday to this city, Wednesday to that city, Thursday to that city, and the mobile unit would be a financial counselor and a caseworker that would deal with X number of families in cooperation with whatever municipality um, uh, division there. It could be the welfare department, it could be the education department, it could be the mayor's office, and we're looking now to branch out to two or three more cities um, with the with the mobile units. Wow, amazing. How do people, how do families hear about you or get, get uh you know, put in the system, so to speak, or is there a screening process? I'm sure there is, but as so, those rabbis referring? So we have, we have rabbis referring. Um, we have rabbinim who are very actively involved, um, both here in Israel and even the United States. I get, I get calls from rabbinim in America who say that someone came to my office in my shul in Baltimore, New York, Los Angeles. Um, can you help them? Really? So we get that every once in a while. Rabbanim here locally, um, friends, neighbors, Every once in a while, the Department of Welfare in a particular city will also come to us. Um, and when the, the, the most referable is when the people come on their own. Mm. Again, we advertise. We advertise as part of our PR, of course, as fundraising, and people want to know what we do. And there's a lot of word of mouth. Um, we had a person some years ago who, uh, again, he was an avreich and he wasn't making it. And he wanted a kosher way of getting into the work field. So he came to us and we helped him through another program. Um, we worked together with Karen Kamach, which is another program, and we helped him and his family throughout. And, and over about 13 months, 14 months, he's finished his course, he started working. So everything changed. He was working for a high-tech company, so now he has a car. He's the only person in his building with a car. Right. It has the emblem of his high-tech company on it. Um, his kids uh, dress a little bit differently. Not fancy, but there's not hand-me-downs. And, and there's definitely a noticeable lifestyle difference. And uh, we'll call him Kalman. So Kalman is now inviting people for a Shabbos meal, which he hadn't done before. Um, over the next six months after Kalman finished his, his program, three of Kalman's neighbors came to us. Well, they saw the impact. They saw, they asked him, how did you get to this? Again, so not that we were, you know, we're not the, we're not the magic ball. We're not, uh, you know, uh, we're not the, the wizard. But we, we, we do provide the tools. And sometimes it's not us. Sometimes we work in cooperation with another organization or um, a municipality organization or a government organization in order to get the most for a person. If a mm -hmm. person really is willing to um, work hard and be flexible, they can pull themselves out of their crisis, mm -hmm. whether it's financial or otherwise. Right. Do you, does the government fund the Michigan 100% private? 100% private, not a penny from the government. So they, they do send us people. <laughs> um, the Israeli government looks at it as follows. There are 45,000 registered organizations in the state of Israel. Only about... Um, Less than 6,000 or about 6,000 have tax deductible status, which means that if you write a, a check to the really? organization, you get tax deductible status. Um, the government of Israel, they don't give you a tax um, deduction. They give you cash back in your bank account. What does that mean? If a person gives a thousand shekel donation to Lamanachai, we have, we have the 46 tax status here in Israel, you get 
um, 35% of that donation back in cash. Well, it means you get 350 shekel in your account, but it's even more. In America, you have one year to claim your deduction for whatever the deduction is going to be in your tax liability. In Israel, you have up to seven years to get that 35% back. Well, so the government says, well, you know, you play by the rules and you get your 46 status. Um, we'll help you by encouraging donors to give to you. And that's their, their participation. There are government um, funds and foundations yeah. for specific pro projects, but it reads like the ingredients of a can of soda, the requirements of what you have to go through. Um, for instance, we got a list of them. And then if you have Ethiopian families that made Aliyah in 1984 and were between <laughs> the ages of 48 and 52 and have children and the X ages, um, and then you are entitled to 5,000 shekel per family. In order to prove that, you have to hire an accountant or a bookkeeper to go ahead and prove all the documentation. By the end of the day, you'll find that you have seven people out of your whole family list that might be eligible, and you spend 100,000 shekel to get 35. So the government, um, they, do have, they do have grants and they do have programs. They're working more on that. Really, the Israeli government has, has taken um, lead from other countries that know that the private sector can sometimes do it better. Um, so there, there's, there's been movement in that way. And again, they gave us a piece of land to build on. Um, that's the easy part. The building is a different more. Got to pay for the part. building, right? But um, that's also a help that we're very, very thankful for and very appreciative of that they recognize what we're doing and they want us to have, instead of having here, there, and everywhere, they want us to have a national center. So who who's responsible for the fundraising? Is that you? Is that your privilege? Sure. I'm in charge of everything, but uh, thank God I'm not the fundraiser. Um, I do fundraising, but I'm not the main fundraiser. We do have a fundraiser who's in charge of that and you know meeting our budget and, and developing new donors. Um, I was, we were very blessed with the first two donors for our building actually approached me. Well, I didn't have to go to them. And um, a significant amount to, to build, about a third of what we need to build. Well, um, again, because they've seen from a distance what we've done over the past 10 to 12 years. And um, they became very interested in Lamana High, and they want Lamana High to be able to make a bigger impact by having a building, by having more services, everything under one roof. Um, some of our programs, as you see here in our office now, um, have to be outsourced to other places because we don't have the room. So this would enable us to have the room to have everything under one roof other than the local uh, offices in other cities. Right. Right. Well, and, and just in closing, how has all this impacted you and, and your family? How has it, uh, what has it done to your life? And, you know, kind of imagining the alternative path, having, you know, if you had worked in high tech and kind of gone that so, conventional route. So that, that's a great question. I, um, the truth is, I, I wake up every day and uh, I thank Hashem for the ability to be able to do that. Number one, I work with an amazing group of people. Um, these are all people, some of them were in the the uh, private sector as financial counselors yeah. and psychologists, and they literally gave it up, and they're getting a charity uh, organization salary um, in order to, to help other people. And these are really dedicated, idealistic people, and it's just a privilege to work with them. We have a core nationwide of over 350 volunteers. And again, these are dedicated people. So for me, it's been a godsend. Um, but again, like my son said, I don't get up knowing that I help someone program their DVD player. Um, I help them change their life. Maybe program their life. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's not me. It's a team. It's, uh, you know, I'm just a clee. 
uh, with a group of people who are really dedicated, and we have partners worldwide. Those people who give their miser and tzedakah to the Manachai because they want to they want to see results. Leverage. Yeah. It's leverage. I tell people it's like if we were um, you know if we were an investment, people would run to invest. An IPO, I said, because of our return on investment. You know, the average family literally takes a family on the dole literally takes hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars from the Jewish community at large in order to survive, you know, put food on the table to pay their rent, to make a wedding. We invest 25,000, sometimes a little bit more dollars into that family. And generally that's it because the next generation is also financially independent and that family is set for life. Um, that's not to say that they're not going to slip back. That's not going to say that something's going to happen, um, that they're going to need our help again. And there are things that happen in people's lives, even professionals. Yeah. And that's why we're there. Sometimes it's safety a safety net. net. Yeah. Um, and we've had that with families who, again, got, we had someone who was a volunteer and he was a donor of ours. He came knocking at the door. He was diagnosed with a serious life-threatening illness and he couldn't work anymore and he needed guidance and so we worked together with him from the medical standpoint we hospitals around the world um you know working with his employer and uh, in order to make sure that he had a safety net while he was going through his crisis well incredible incredible uh, organization that as i mentioned i've been reading about for for a long time and really want to drill down and understand what Smart Chesed is all about. Um, tell people where they can learn about it, if they'd like to donate, if they'd like to just import it to their own communities, or just generally read about what's going on in this okay, great organization. Great. So we have a website, uh, 2018, we have a website, www.lamanachai.org. Um, I'm not sure it's a website people could spell. So <laughs> Lamanachai, L-E-M-A-A-N-A-C-H-A-I.org. Um, the, the, in, the website is very interactive with a lot of information. Um, I come to the United States and Canada periodically to speak in communities, not only, again, to present them on a high, but to help communities themselves who want to start that. We were invited about uh, eight years ago by the Orthodox Union to help them with five seed communities, Sadak and Chesa projects in their community. I was invited to Muncie. Um, to help uh, a shul there that wants to start a Lamanachai type of organization. I'm going to California later this year to do the same thing. So I'm uh, available to do that. Again, we're on the same team. If we can help someone start a Lamanachai type of organization, we've done it here in Israel. Not always is it starting another organization. Sometimes it's helping someone in their community. Again, uh, why reinvent the wheel? Why double resources? If someone's doing the job there, we're more than happy to help. Very good. Rabbi Avram Levenfeld, thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash jews you should know finally if you have enjoyed this podcast please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to jews you should know